0: All right, guys, as you know, this past weekend, a huge portion of us got to go up uh, northeast to a place called Bermuda Dunes. We were able to hang out in this villa and have train retreat. It was a really, it was an awesome time, guys. It was so good. Guys, we were in a huge house, and we had a really dope backyard with a huge pond in it. Some of us were able to jump in a huge pool and hang out with our friends and have just a really good time. We're able to take that time and get some awesome lectures from Pastor Jacob, which was so good. We got some time to uh, read through some Bible commentaries and books. And then finally, we got to take a really big exam on Saturday evening. A lot of you guys, all of you took it, right? I know that was a lot for you guys. And for those who weren't there, it was a lot for them, right? Taking the test wasn't just as simple as just winging it, showing up and trying it out. Time of study was needed a time of place of, of working with one another and helping each other out was, was really helpful to one another, you knew that in order to pass the test, you needed to get it right. You needed to get it right. That you would need to respond rightly to the reality of your situation. That you needed study, practice, memorization. You needed to prepare with your friends and etc. But imagine if one student came and they studied for the test, but months ago. And they completely forgot. They completely forgot what, what, they, what the test was about. And they go in to take a test and they fail because they forgot. They wouldn't get the test right. They wouldn't pass the test. Or if another student thought, well, I really don't care too much about the test. I, I just would, would like to go hang out with my friends. Why, why, do, why does this need to be that big of a deal? It's not going to impact my GPA anyways. Who cares? And so they go and hang out with their friends and they don't do any studying. How how do you think the test is going to go for them? They're going to fail it. They're not going to get it right. But what if another student came along to the retreat and thought that, you know, since they went to church their whole life, they heard sermon after sermon after sermon each week, that they thought this is going to be a breeze. Easy. But not to their knowledge, they don't get it right. And I believe that when it comes to the realities, that have an impact on us, if we don't rightly respond to them, those realities will become consequences for us. And when it comes to the reality of Jesus, Jesus Christ, what he did, what he said, and especially who he testified to be, it makes an impact on our reality, bigger than any other truth, bigger than any other reality that you guys could know. Our response to realities of who Jesus is and who he testified to be is actually bigger than any other reality in your life. Think about the way that you breathe, the food that you need to eat, the water you need to drink. The reality of who Jesus is and who he says he is is much more important than even that. And I seriously mean that. That's a big statement. I would say that's the biggest statement. And so if you don't rightly respond to this testimony that we're going to talk about today in the passage. If we don't rightly respond to Jesus, you will naturally become more anxious, more bitter, less assured, more selfish, because you don't actively trust your living to the truths and the claims that Jesus makes. The truths of Jesus' testimony are world-turning. They're life-changing. They're spiritually encouraging they're spiritually defending, and they're life-saving for you guys. These are the claims of Jesus. And I encourage you guys today not to just listen, but to spend all of who you are, all of your thinking, all all of your, your, your thoughts and everything in your mind to understand these claims and the ramifications of who Jesus is. What he said, what he did, and what he's done. What you guys need to do is rightly respond to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, in light of that, I would love to turn to our passage today, Luke 22, verses 66 through 71. I'm really excited to share this passage with you you guys today, mainly because what I'm going to tell you guys today is the thing that matters most importantly to me. This matters so much to me more than anything else in the world. But I think in order to, to rightly understand what's going on in this passage, we, I want to give you guys some context. I want to give you guys some context. So at this point, Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the gospel. There's, all, there's these men who he has many conversations with. They're, they're chief priests and scribes. And they have many conversations with Jesus. And through these conversations, these men are led to anger. They're led to the point of attempted murder on Jesus. They're throwing stones at Jesus, rocks to kill him and he'll escape and run away. They try and trip him up in his words to get him to say something wrong, to try and discount his ministry, to try and discount his testimony. And this is all because of who Jesus says he is. The reactions are so fierce. And even, even one of his disciples, Judas, join in the plot of betraying him and trying to arrest him. So during this time, Jesus is really eager to spend um, this this feast, this Passover feast with his disciples. He says tons of really important things in this chapter to prepare and strengthen his disciples. And after the feast, Jesus goes to pray, and the disciples follow him. And during this time of, of prayer, he's in agony. He's praying heavily. He's praying heavily to his to his to his heavenly father because he understands what he's about to go through. He understands the painful consequences he's going to have to endure for our sake when he finishes praying, he, he, he finds the disciples sleeping. He finds them sleeping, and he, and he questions them on, on their sleeping, and, and tells them, hey, let's, let's, you guys need to go pray. You guys, you guys, I know you guys are sad. I know this is crazy right now, but you guys need to go pray. Then Jesus, or Judas, comes in leading a crowd of people, and he comes, and they come to arrest Jesus, And it starts to get even more climactic when one of Jesus' disciples take a sword and cut off and slice off the ear of of one of the members of the crowd, like crazy. But Jesus, not being pleased with this, hoping to stop this, goes and restores that that man's ear with his hand. Of course, they continue with their arrest afterwards. They take him away. And all of his disciples scatter, leaving him alone. You have Peter denying Jesus three times. You have Judas betraying him. And you have all the other disciples running off. Jesus is completely alone. The wicked men take him. They blindfold him and they beat him. And they mock him while he's blindfolded, asking him to prophesy who even hit him. This is what these men are, wicked people, and the event that Jesus had to experience was horrible. All of this simply just because of his testimony. Huge ramifications to who he says he is. And so in the climax of all of that, we come to our passage today. Read with me in Luke 22, verses 66 through 71. It says this, when day came, And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. That is our passage for today. After Jesus is is betrayed, after he's arrested and abandoned, after he's blindfolded and beaten, after he's mocked and he's put on trial, he has the indestructible confidence to claim these these bold claims before his captors. That's crazy, that's amazing. How could he do that after all of that happening? I would be torn apart, I would be broken, I would have nothing left. But Jesus does something different. He has this indestructible confidence. And so the question is, in the midst of all this suffering that he has to endure, what was he claiming? And why did his testimony matter so much? And that's why I think for you guys today, For point number one, what you need to do is you need to know the claims of Jesus. For point number one, you need to know the claims of Jesus. Let's let's look more closely at who Jesus was really claiming to be. I'm going to go off of some claims here, and I'm going to give you guys some some proofs and how we should, in some sense, react to these claims. But I'm going to give you a few. The first one is that Jesus claims that the elders will not believe. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. See, it was not the intention of the elders at all to seek the truth in any regard. I know some of you guys are here today trying to know what the truth is, trying to seek the truth. But at the end of the day, these these elders were the exact opposite. They did not care. Their one goal was to find dirt on Jesus and kill him. That's all that they wanted to do, all that they cared about. They didn't show any compassion on Jesus, and they definitely didn't treat him fairly. Jesus had many encounters with this group of people. Um, some of them, you, you would even remember them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And at this time, Jesus was going back and forth with the elders in this one passage, and in John 8, 43 through 40, 45, it says in this encounter, Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? The reason why why they did harm towards Jesus is because they couldn't bear his words. And the reason why they couldn't bear his words is because they themselves were not living in the truth. They were living for themselves. And since Jesus was telling the truth, they, like just Satan, wanted to seek to do evil towards Jesus. They wanted to seek to kill him because of the truth he claimed. Does that make sense? And so for those who don't want to live by the truth, why are they so hostile towards it for those who want to reject the truth? Why do these elders or anyone reply in such anger and such frustration and such hatred towards Jesus' claims? It's because of the weight of what he was saying, of what he was claiming. If Jesus is the Messiah, every single person should be radically changed by that. If Jesus is the Christ, then we are sinful in need of saving. That's a huge a huge truth to wrestle with. We're shown that the only way to live is by submitting to him as the ruler of this whole world and that he's the one in charge. The, the weight of our reality of who Jesus Christ is is something that we need to live under. We should be people that are always seeking the truth unlike these guys who don't believe. You need to know the truth of who Christ is. The second claim is that Jesus claims that the elders will not answer. It says here, if I ask you, you will not answer. The elders were scared of answering Jesus' questions because they didn't want to get caught in being wrong. Again, they weren't seeking to do what is right. They didn't have integrity. They just wanted to have their way. Jesus says, Jesus says this, you, you, if, I, if I ask you, you will not answer. And he makes it subtly clear to the whole room that this trial isn't, isn't very fair. It's not very fair at all. They ask questions and demand answers, but they themselves never answer the questions that are given to them. They didn't want to get caught even disregarding the law, but at the same time, they wanted to silence Jesus secretly. And so what they try and do is they try and not answer his questions, but see, are acting unfairly towards him by demanding that he answer their questions. There's actually another encounter that Jesus has before this, that it's the same situation. It says in Luke 23 through 7, he answered them, I will also ask you a question. This is Jesus. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. See, you can see right through these guys. You obviously can understand that they're not willing to answer simple questions of Jesus. And see, Jesus makes bold, really, really bold claims. I can imagine that some of you have chores. I hope all of you have chores, genuinely. But if your mom or dad asks you, hey, did you take out the trash when I told you to? Hey, did you finish your homework before going outside and hanging out with your friends? did you do what I am telling you to do? If you didn't have the integrity and didn't do the things that they told you to do, you should rightly be afraid to answer your parents. Because you know that if you are not acting rightly, if you are not living under the reality of what the truth is, that your parents are the authority, then at the end of the day, you're going to be very scared of answering those questions because they're going to condemn you. And it's the same thing with these elders. You weren't they weren't living in the truth that Christ is the authority. They knew that these questions would, that he's asking would condemn them. And I hope that you guys will be people who are choosing to know the truth and to live under the truth, that, that your parents are the authority, that Jesus is the Christ, and that he reigns over your life. The way that you live needs to be impacted by your knowledge of who Jesus is. That's what I'm trying to say with this point. It needs to be impacted by who Jesus is. The third claim he makes that is that Jesus claims that he is the Son of Man. Now this statement is a huge statement, massive statement. He says, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The Son of Man was a very special um, character, person in the Bible. And his name goes all the way back into the Old Testament. He was a divine figure that will rule over every single thing. Open up and turn with me to to Daniel 7. This is where this son of man is. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. The son of man um, was depicted by the prophet Daniel. He had a night vision and saw all these things. And who this person is, is, is huge. Radically changes the way that we should think. But open up to Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I'll read it here. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So there's really three big things here that the Son of Man is given by God. One thing is that he's he's given dominion. Dominion over all peoples, of all things, right? Sovereign ruler. And if this really, it says literally in the passage, all people, that means he will reign above everyone, just like God. The second thing he's given is glory. So he has, he's equal with God in dominion, but he's also equal with God in glory. Glory is basically praising and honoring from the things that are subjective to that thing. So that thing is given glory, praise, honor, exaltation, things of that manner from its subjects. But God says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Hmm, contradiction? No, it's not. God gets all the glory. But who is this son of man? He's he's, he's at equality with God in dominion, equality with God in glory. And finally, he's given one more last thing. Everlasting power. The Son of Man is given infinite life, infinite time to rule, and infinite power over all things. He does as He pleases. But if God is the sole beginning creator and sole sustainer of life and sovereign ruler, then who's this Son of Man? If this Son of Man is Jesus, as Jesus claims to be over and over and over again in the Gospel Luke and the other Gospels, then that means that Jesus, being the Son of Man, is God. That should be a reality that changes how we think. Not just in a small way, but in a radical sense. You, ne- you need to know. You need to know these impactful things. You need to understand them. You need to get them. I imagine, imagine you guys are older. Imagine you have your dream job, you're married, and, and you love your spouse. Your refrigerator is packed filled with those prime drinks that you guys love. <laughs> I've never had one before, but I heard you guys, you guys love them. Imagine you have a dream car, and you slap the cup of sticker on the back, right? You, you got the life. You get to go on vacations constantly. You have the dream life. But one day you come to this newfound knowledge. You come to realize that there's a different life type of living, lifestyle, That's better. That this life is far better than anything you could ever have. You come to the knowledge that this life you could have is far better than what you have currently right now. It will never end. It will always be amazing. It will never lose its enjoyment. It will never get old. Comparative to the life you're living now. The life that I speak of is living in the light of the testimony of who Jesus Christ is. He's your savior. He's your God, your king. He bore the cross for all of you. He died for you and beat death for you because he loves you. You need to know the testimony of Jesus. You need to live in the truth of who Jesus is. All right pause, Luke, I've been going to church since I was literally born. Like, come on, I know this stuff. Why are you telling me this? I know it all. What's the trouble of of you going through all of this and making this clear to me when I've already heard it hundreds of times? And that's my problem. If you think that you can just go about the claims of Jesus as a normal thing, oh yeah, everyday life, whatever, Jesus is my king, my lord, okay, whatever, and it doesn't really radically change your life, Then, do you really know the claims of Jesus? What matters is how you respond to this knowledge. And there's plenty of ways that you can really respond wrongly. And for point number two, what you need to do is you need to avoid responding wrongly to Jesus. Let's look back at our passage in verses 66 to 67 we get to see a specific group of people who really do respond wrongly to Jesus. Read it here, verse 66 in our passage. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. Okay, if we're going to talk about a people group or a person who really responds wrongly to Jesus... It's going to be these elders. They are like bottom of the barrel here. And I want to give you guys some context on who these guys were very quickly. These elders were a very smart group of people. They were very knowledgeable. They were made up of chief priests and scribes. Their jobs were to constantly study, practice the scriptures, memorize the scriptures, and also proclaim them around to people, proclaiming God's word to people. They were even supposed to know it all by heart. And guess what? Some of them did These guys were like, these guys were amazing with the Bible. They knew it so well. And they were supposed to be honorable men. And having this title on on this committee called the Sanhedrin, that's where this trial takes place in our passages, is a place uh, called the Sanhedrin. You'd also know them as as Pharisees or Sadducees, as I said earlier. And, And these people would be mostly godly people. And if they knew the word of God so much and were buried in it as their job, you, you would think that they wouldn't be too bad, let alone murderers. But as you know, these men were treacherous people. Treacherous men. You found these elders, before before the day came in our passage, beating and mocking Jesus for who he's testifying to be. And when they finally get their hands on Jesus, you get to see all the evil ways they act. You get to see it all. They waited till daytime to put him on trial because they didn't have the power to actually serve the death penalty to him. Only the Roman authorities could do that. And so their whole goal, obviously with that, just proves the point that all they wanted to do was kill Jesus. Not seek the truth. Not do a righteous thing. They just wanted to to kill someone who was getting in their way. Who was saying something that they didn't like to say. And I think this shows their really, really wicked behavior. You think that these guys know the law so well and abide by it, but they actually broke the law on several accounts. One of the the ways they broke the law is that you weren't allowed to hold the trial, to hold a trial in the morning of a, a feast day. Obviously, this was Passover week, and they were feasting throughout the week, celebrating, remembering about what God did, saving Israel out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. But they weren't allowed to have trials in the mornings of those feast days, but they did it anyways, right? Sounds like they're breaking the law there. Another one is if you look at the account in all the other Gospels, they never give a formal defense. I mean, sorry, Jesus never gives a formal defense. You think they're asking all these questions, they're accusing him of these things, they're beating him and hurting him and mocking him, but Jesus never gets a chance to defend himself. Imagine if you were in a court and you got no defense and you were innocent. That's really unfair. That's breaking a law. And then finally, when it, when it comes to giving a capital offense to someone, you're judging someone for a capital offense in this time, it normally takes two days they did this in one. So they're, these guys, who are supposed to be honorable men, were treacherous in breaking the law. All they wanted to do, and this is the point I'm trying to reinforce, was kill Jesus. And this was the treachery of the elders. Their actions were directly the result of Jesus' heartbreaking crucifixion. The hours of him bleeding out on the cross. This is, these, these guys were responsible. You guys would say these guys are pretty bad, right? Yeah? You guys think they're pretty bad? I mean, I definitely would say so. And they had plenty of knowledge of what was right. They had plenty of knowledge of what was the truth. But they never really responded to it. I want you guys to just very quickly open up with me to John 10. John 10, verses 25 to 26. Jesus is calling out the elders in, in, in this account in their unbelief. And he states clearly that they don't rightly respond. John 10, 25, and 26. It says, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus hopes for everyone to believe in these truths. Jesus even loved these wicked elders. He wanted to see them believe in the truth, but they rejected it regardless. They responded wickedly through the means of not believing by refusing to believe what he testified to be. Jesus' actions, words, and motives show the elders that his works bear witness about who he is, his perfect nature, his loving nature, the truth of who he is, where he came from, the gravity of who he is. But what about us? What about us? Do we rightly respond to Jesus? Years ago, I uh, got my driver's license and I was learning how to drive and I wouldn't say I was the best driver, which you'll understand by the end of my story. One day, I was driving down a street I drive down almost every single day. I was, it was the closest main street to my house, and it was just like a mile or two away. I was driving, and I'm, I'm looking down at my speedometer, making sure that, I, that I'm staying by the speed limit, and I, I'm looking for too long. I forget to look up, and I find myself screeching to a halt. I disobeyed the rules not keeping my eyes on the road for a long period of time. And all because I didn't believe what was going to happen next. About 20 feet from the light, I notice it's red, and I come to a screeching halt, and I almost stop in the inside of the intersection. And at this point, I'm freaked out, and another person comes along, and from what I heard from from the other testimonies and and claims that I heard was that this person was also on, on their phone, and they, take a, they swing a left, and they T-bone me, and my car tips over. My tire rolls over, one of my tires ro- ro- rolls over their hood, just smashing and crushing the front of their car. All because I wrongly responded to how I should have been driving. I put myself in danger and others in danger because I re- wrongly responded to the truth of this situation. I should have believed the realities of my circumstances. That's what I should have done. And I believe wholeheartedly that there is something much more significant and much more important to respond to than the realities of driving a car. Of course they're important. I'm not saying that they're not. But there's something way more important. What's more important? It's how you respond to the realities of Jesus Christ. So, how how do you guys respond to Jesus? Do you guys respond wrongly? I'm going to quickly give you guys four ways that you can respond to Jesus wrongly. Be careful of these things, avoid these things. Here we go. First one is you can forget to respond to Jesus. We're so caught up with our, our life and our friends that we lose sight of, of, of the reality of who Jesus is. We, we, we lose sight of how we should be responding to him each and every day, each and every moment, each and every event. And I, and I, I think of asking this question to you guys, is, is who are your friends? Who are you surrounding yourself with? Are they Christian friends? Are you forgetting to, to be careful of, of, of being around a certain person that will pull you away from responding rightly to Jesus will get you to forget because you're so focused on the things of this world and the things of, uh, of your social life and the things that you, that you care dearly about so much? And even if they are only Christian friends, are you getting occupied with them so much so that it pulls you away from Jesus being the, the, number, one, the number one priority in your life? I think we get so occupied with our social life so much so that we start to think about what others think about us too much. Think about, oh, what am I wearing? Is is this okay? Thinking about, you know, if I said this or did this or if I acted this way, what are people going to think of me? Especially my friends. Don't let the pursuit of your social life get in the way your pursuit of Christ. Make, Make your number one priority the pursuit of Christ. Don't let the things of this world get in the way of remembering how to rightly respond to Jesus. The second one is, you can respond in disobedience to him. That's another way we can wrongly respond. Don't let the desires of your life hold you of obeying Christ. Do they? Do the desires of your life get in the way of you obeying Christ? Or do they not? The temptation of of laziness can be a problem, I think, with everyone, with you guys, maybe trying to get your homework done, Right, the, the desires can pull us from not spending focused time in God's word. That's what our laziness can do to us. Or it can even get us to, to never get into God's word at all because we just want to do what we want to do. We don't want to be focused and spend time in God's word. The, the, the prompts in our hearts is, is to grumble and getting things done. And, and that, that simple thing, that grumbling in our hearts, not wanting to be obedient but rather satisfy ourselves will, will pull us away from properly responding to Christ being our authority in our lives, to Christ being important in our lives. Don't respond to Christ in disobedience. Don't respond to him in disobedience. Thirdly, you cannot care to respond to him or, 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 you, cannot, or you can ignore him. You can ignore him. I, I believe this is the most insidious one of them all, is the apathy we have towards Jesus. By God's grace, he has brought you, brought most of you up in this church. Either maybe he brought you up in a godly home, or he has in some way given you the gift of growing up so far in his word. Very knowledgeable. Something I see here in the narrow that I want to praise you guys for is that you guys are really smart. I'm not saying that just to You guys, up seriously, I do. I think that I think you guys are actually more knowledgeable of God's word than most most adults. I'm serious. Like, you guys are given so much of God's word every week, you guys think critically so much of it, you guys memorize and study and in God's word every single day. At least, I hope you are. You guys know a whole lot, but because of the simple truth, your flesh takes advantage of this by becoming thick-skinned, hard-heartened to the grace of these truths. They become less impactful for for you. They become desensitized to you. And you need to wake up to the danger of what you're doing, this apathy. You have this great intellectual understanding of God, and you think that that's all you need. You have this great intellectual understanding of God's word, but at the end of the day, that's not what faith is in the Lord Jesus. It's not just knowing who he is. Knowing him so well. Again, base foundation of what that, that is. That's, that's good. I'm glad you guys know that. And that's a really good thing. And you guys should keep pursuing that. But That's not enough. That's not what, what is going to give you faith. It's just simply knowing. You need to know him. But there's more. Don't become apathetic to the claims of Jesus. Don't become apathetic. Lastly, and I think this one encompasses all the three that I've just explained, is you cannot believe in what he says. You cannot believe in what he says. It's our heart response to forget about how to respond to Jesus, to respond to him in disobedience, or to not care to even respond to him. And all of those those things come from the beginning of that, you don't believe really in Jesus. You don't take him seriously. And if you did, you wouldn't forget. You'd say, he's too important for me to forget. You wouldn't disobey disobey him because you want to honor Jesus because of who he is to you. And you wouldn't lack care for him. You would say, "I, I want to to know more about Jesus because I love him so much. Of course, you're not going to do this perfectly. I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect at this. But someone who wants to rightly respond to Jesus will make it their life commitment to avoid these wrong responses. So, so what is the right response? What is the right response? There's only one. And for point number three, you need to believe in the testimony of Jesus, That is the one and only right response. He's believing in the testimony of Jesus. Let's look at our passage one final time in verses 70 to 71. And so they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. After Jesus testified boldly in front of the Sanhedrin, the elders really wanted him to explicitly say something that would make him condemnable, worthy of death, something that's blasphemous. Claiming that you're the you're the Christ is not a blasphemous thing to the elders. But what, what was what was blasphemous was saying that you are the judge and ruler over everything and everyone like God. Saying that you're equal with God, I mean, if someone, if I said to you guys today on this poll that I'm equal with God, first of all, I shouldn't even be here. <laughs> but, but let alone, that would be such a wrong thing to say. But Jesus claims that. But see, I'm, I'm not equal with God. No, we're near equal with God. But the Son of Man is. And that's who Jesus is. He's the Son of Man. Of course, They try and ask a further question, which is what we just read in the passage, to try and to try and get some sort of explicit reply to to get him condemned. So they can just get him and be done with him and kill him. When Jesus affirmed this, he, he he affirms that he is the divine judge, currently judging them in the actions of that room. They're judging him, but in reality, he's the divine judge over them, judging them that in that exact moment. Jesus also affirms that he's God's son. He will be used as an instrument to even grant salvation to people through his resurrection and ascension. We just read earlier in John 10, I'd love for you to flip back. There's more verses, and I think this is really applicable to what the right understanding looks like. John 10, verses 27 to 30, Jesus explains his relation to being his father's son, and the work that he's going to provide that will be eternal life. It reads here, John 10, 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them Out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, I and the Father are one. Jesus has this understandable connection with His, with this sheep, with His sheep, or in a more literal, literal sense, the people who believe that He's the Son of God, the Son of Man. Because their belief, Jesus gives them eternal life, eternal security because of their belief. Another area in Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. If Jesus and his claims are real, and if they're true, then this means three things. That Jesus is perfect, never making a mistake. That Jesus is powerful, nothing ever hindering his abilities. And finally, He's 100% reliable to provide for us. And if you rely on Christ for the work that he has done on the cross for us, bearing the sins for you, that's what he did for you, he can save you from the wrath of God, the just wrath of God. I have one more place to turn with. We're running out of time here, but turn with me to Romans 10, 9 through 13. This gives a very applicable a very helpful clear understanding of of what this belief and believing in the testimony of Jesus really looks like. Romans ten, nine through thirteen says this because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul makes it clear that in order to be saved, we must confess and believe. And the concept of faith is not your intellectual understanding. It's that intellectual understanding of God's grace applied to you. It's not your feelings that are applied to you to get God's grace. Your, your wisdom, your intellect, your knowledge, whatever it may be, your feelings, those don't make a means for you to be saved, right? What saves you is the grace of Jesus, and this idea of, of the mode in which you are saved by the grace of Jesus is through your full reliance and trust that Jesus alone did the work. A type of realization of the truth, that your faith leads you to live loyalty, to live loyally to Jesus. Jesus saves us by our grace, our belief is in His work, and that happens through the means of our faith, our trust, our entrusting of ourselves, entrusting of our lives and our lifestyles to Him. And I know you guys have heard all of Jesus' claims before. And I know you desire in some manner to have the right response. I I, I understand that. I'm a a leader here and I, and I, I hear that all the time. I get that. And I'm so glad you guys want to know what the right response is but it's not just intellectually understanding and then living just obediently. It's an, an entrusting, a genuine eye-opening realization of the work that Jesus has done for you. And knowing that truth radically changes, changes us to live for him. You need to know the impact of the testimony of Jesus that it, that it should have on your life and be aware of responding wrongly by forgetting or distrusting him or disobeying him or rejecting him. Instead, fervently go to Jesus. Fervently go to Jesus. Remember his perfectness. Remember his his powerful nature. Remember his reliable promises that he makes to you. And put all of your assurance, put all of your trust in him. And he will, and I promise you this because he promised it to me and he promised it to you guys, that he will transform your life. Believe in the testimony of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. God, we we hear of your grace constantly. Father, we hear of your love for us constantly, how you bore our sins. God, we know what it means to be saved. We understand that it's, it's, it's the, the knowledge of who you are and then having the, the knowledge of, of who we are towards you and then the response of what it looks like to respond to you. I pray today, God, that these students would, in, in every either moment or situation or just to be their whole lifestyle, Father, that they would come to a place of putting their complete assurance into you That God, this is how you save people. You save people by the blood of your son, Father. And you save them through the means of people believing in what Jesus has done for them. By dying the death that we deserved. And resurrecting from the grave, giving us full assurance of your power and your perfectness and your reliability that we can trust in you. We have no reason not to, Father. Lead us to do this through your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.